You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Thanks, Ken. Um, So we'll be reading today from uh, Acts 16. Again, it's a longer one, so do strap in again. Um, If you'd like to follow along, it's uh, on the welcome card on your phone or there are Bibles at the end of the row. Uh, Acts 16. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey so he could circumcise him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions travelled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. 
And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before, before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want us to get rid and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Great, welcome. Great to see you here on a long weekend. Let me pray and we'll start on Acts 16. Uh, Father God, watch over us this day as we hear your word. We pray that you'd speak to us. Draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want an outline of today's uh, talk, you need to look up that little thing on the interweb. There are some diagrams on the uh, Darabin website, the church website. If you want a clue in, feel free. If you want to drift off to sleep, that's your business. Are you one of the bad guys? In the eyes of many now, in the eyes of many in our community today, Christianity is a problem. Many people believe that a Christian perspective on identity, on gender, sexuality, same-sex marriage, are not only offensive but harmful. If you're a Christian, many people may see you as one of the bad guys. Are you familiar with the story of Andrew Thorburn? Recently, he was appointed to be the CEO of the Essendon Football Club. It emerged the next day that he also attended, was the chairman, in fact, of the City on a Hill Church, an Anglican church in the city. The church on its website had posted some sermons about same-sex attraction. The message on, in the sermon was that Acting on same-sex attraction was a sin. In another sermon posted on the website, abortion was portrayed in a negative way. The message was that abortion was wrong. Andrew Thorburn was given a choice. You can remain as the chairman of the City on a Hill Church or... You can be the CEO of the Essendon Football Club, not both. Andrew chose to resign. He 
his position as the CEO of the football club. When he interviewed Daniel Andrews, the uh, Premier of our wonderful state, said, that kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred, bigotry is just wrong. Those views are absolutely appalling. City on a Hill is a, is a mainstream Anglican church. The Premier of our state said about the views articulated by that church, intolerant, hatred, bigotry, wrong, absolutely appalling. Are you one of the bad guys? If you are a Christian, if you want to identify as a Christian, many people will see you as... One of the bad guys. And as a result, you may want to keep a low profile. Avoid difficult conversations. Become invisible. Or maybe you want to push back. Maybe you're up for a fight. Maybe you want to engage in the so-called culture wars. Where are you? Which option do you feel more comfortable with? Is one option better than another? Arguably, it's hard to say, but today I want to explore with you what Paul does in Acts 16. I want to suggest that Paul provides you with a model. Paul is presenting Christ to a culture that is every bit as hostile as our culture is today. You see that in the story. Paul is beaten up physically, put in jail because he proclaims Christ. Let me suggest that Paul gives you a way forward in a culture which is hostile. So here are my four key words today. Pray, walk, talk, and church. Pray, walk, talk, and church. Look at it with me. Paul in Acts 16 is on a mission. His mission is to visit some churches. His task is to take a letter written by the council in Jerusalem, Acts 15. We talked about that last week. Luke makes that clear in Acts 15, verse 36. His mission is simply to visit the churches where they had preached the word of the Lord. What he planned to do after that, we're not told. Acts 16, Paul begins by visiting churches in Derby and Lystra. Luke tells us in verse 6 that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of Christ in Asia. Paul and his companions then travel to Mysia and then attempt to go into Bithynia. But we're told again the Holy Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. Let me suggest at this point Paul is devoting himself to prayer. Why is the Lord preventing them from visiting established churches in Asia. Because God is sending Paul to be an ambassador for Christ in Europe. 
You see that in verse 9. So if, it's, if you've got a Bible open, have a look. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Now what does Paul do when he arrives in Philippi? He finds a place where the Bible is being read. People are saying their prayers. Luke verse 13 says, We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now what would have happened? Paul may have said something like, Tell me what you're learning in the Bible about the promises God made to Israel. The women may have said something like, well, we've learned that God made promises to bless the world through a descendant of Abraham. Paul then, given the content of his sermons in Acts thus far, must have said something like, let me give you the key to understanding the Old Testament. Let me make sense of it all to you. The key is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfilment of Abraham's promise. He's the fulfilment of the Mosaic law. He is the Lamb of God. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He pays the cost forgiveness requires. Did Paul lead an amazing Bible study? Maybe. Paul was an outstanding communicator. But note what Luke does in the story. He highlights not Paul's communication skills, but something God does. See, look at verse, 16, verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart. That's the language here. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, she's the first Christian in Europe. She's from Thyatira. She bought and sold expensive upmarket purple cloth. She's a high-end fashion retailer. She's rich. She owns her own home. And she, eventually she becomes Paul's patron. Now, have you heard of Reinhold Niebuhr? You can put your hands up if you've been to Bible college because that's the only place where maybe you'll have heard of him. Mm, no hands. Interesting. <laughs> Reinhold Niebuhr, he's a German-American theologian writing in the 1950s. He wrote this really famous book. I'm telling you it's famous, even if you don't know it. It's really well known, called Christ and Culture. In the book, he explores the relationship Christians have had with culture over the last couple hundred years. A couple thousand years, really. I want to focus on three of his suggestions. If you've got the little thing on in front of you on your phone, you'll get the diagram. The three views are Christ against culture, Christ above culture, and the Christ of culture. Christ against culture. In this view, this way of thinking about the relationship between church and culture, Christ and culture, Christianity and the culture are opposed. They're in conflict. Loyalty to Christ entails a rejection of the culture. Historically, this is why Christians built monasteries, withdrew into separate communities. 
Rod Dreyer, a leading Christian American voice, says that we need to do something similar today. His message is that the world we live in, the culture we live in, opposes Christianity. We need to embrace exile from the mainstream, construct a resilient counterculture at home and in church. He calls this the Benedict Option after the guy who started the monasteries. If you adopt this position, you will be a critic of the culture you inhabit. View number two, Christ above culture. In this view, again, Christ and culture are intention, they're in conflict. But given that Christians have a mission to be ambassadors for Christ, withdrawing is not an option. You need to engage you need to speak to the culture about Christ. Tim Keller, another leading American voice, argues for this position. He suggests that even though the culture is hostile to Christianity, we need to speak truth to power. We need to plant new churches. Let me call this option the Keller option. There are some other names I could throw in, but Tim will do, Uncle Tim. <clears throat> Third view, the Christ of culture. In this view, the church and the world kind of live together. They accommodate each other. They modify each other. At best, this perspective acknowledges that Christ and the world have things in common. At worst, loyalty to culture trumps loyalty to Christ. Perhaps the loudest voice in this space is the, was the American bishop, John Shelby Spong. He argued that Christianity must change or die. It must embrace the culture and be formed by the culture it inhabits or it will simply be a thing of the past. He started what some people call progressive Christianity. And many of, many of our politicians in Australia are what I would call progressive Christians. Three options. You've got the Benedict option, withdraw, retreat. Lots of Christians prefer this option. Retreat into your family, send your kids to Christian schools, get them playing Christian sport, withdraw from the culture. Christ above culture. You recognise that Christ is Lord above all. Because he is Lord above all, you can speak into the culture appropriately, gently, without wanting to seek power and control what the culture does. The third view is that you allow the culture to shape you. You, in fact, begin to reflect the values of your culture. Progressive Christianity. 
If you had a choice of those three views now, which do you think would fit with you, with the way you're living? There's good points about all three options. But which one might Paul in Acts 16 inhabit? What might his option be? Now, I don't want to kind of make everything too simple. I mean, people have written big fat books on this topic. I can suggest some books if you want to read them. But let's take a closer look at what Paul's doing in Acts 16. I think his behaviour illuminates his particular preference. So let's go back to the Bible, look at verse 16. Luke says, Once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Now, why is this unnamed girl harassing Paul? Perhaps she's filled with spiritual turmoil. She's involved what some people would call today occult practices. She's the face of a fortune-telling business. Maybe she sees Paul as a threat to the business. Maybe she knows the truth. Maybe she knows that Paul's a servant of the Most High God and she's reaching out to Paul. She's a slave, she's powerless, she's exploited. She wants Paul to save her. What does Paul do? Luke says, Finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. Now, at that moment, the spirit left her. Why was Paul annoyed? Perhaps he saw her as a threat to his ministry. Perhaps he was annoyed by the way she harasses him day after day. Maybe he's annoyed by her situation. She's powerless. She's clearly being exploited. There may be some ambiguity about what's motivating Paul, but Paul clearly does something to help her. He saves her. The spirit is banished. She's free. But her owners are furious. Paul, let me suggest, is not the Benedict option man. Paul and Silas are seized. They're taken to face the authorities. And they're subject to hate speech. Look at verse 20. These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. Now, do you hear what they're saying? These Jews are not like us. They're foreign. 
They're from the east. They don't do the things we do. They don't believe the things we believe. Their way of, our, their way of salvation is incompatible with Western culture. What happens? There's a riot. Paul and Silas are stripped. They're beaten up, thrown into prison. They would have been in a terrible condition. Here is a culture which is hostile to Christianity. Christianity is seen to be dangerous by both civic and business leaders. What might this mean for us today? Well, I read a Tim Keller sermon, surprise, surprise, on the passage. And Tim uses an illustration. He talks about the ministry of a guy called Robert Lithicum. Lithicum was a theological student way back in the 1950s, before many of you were born. As a part of his training, he's sent to uh, work in, serve in, partner with an inner city church. He starts with them doing some youth ministry for the summer. Lithicum says, I was working with poor teenagers in a government housing project when a 14-year-old girl, Eva, began coming. He says, she was exceptionally beautiful, but her life was a wreck. Crime and drugs all through her broken extended family. She almost had no reading skills at 14. But he says through the youth ministry, she came to know Jesus. She became a Christian. But before he left that summer to return to his home, she came to him and said, I'm really under terrible pressure. A large gang from the projects is, is recruiting girls to be prostitutes for wealthy white men in the suburbs. They make the money and the girls are like their slaves. They're trying to get me. Lithicum remembers how he responded he said something like, the Bible says that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Stick with your youth group, keep up your daily prayer and Bible study, you won't fall into temptation. Months later, he returns. He discovers that she stopped coming to the Bible study, stopped coming to church. He seeks her out and is horrified by her story. She says, look, I gave in. I'm working for them, okay? He says, how could you give in like that? She says, first they beat my father, then my brother, who ended up in hospital. Then they threatened my mother, so I joined. He says, how could you? Why didn't you go to the police? Bob, she said, who do you think they are anyway? She couldn't go to the police, you see, because the police are a part of a gang 
they're behind the gang. Now, how do you minister in a place like that? What do you do in a place like that? You need to speak truth to power. You need to do something about inequality and unjust social structures. You may find the Benedict option attractive. I'm a Christian, but don't shoot me. But if you want to bring the message of Jesus to your culture, if you want to protect people who are weak and vulnerable and exploited, you're going to have to say something. You're going to have to speak truth to culture. Rock the boat. And there may be consequences. You may, just to use the metaphor, get shot. Now, let me take you back to Acts 16. There's been a riot. Paul and Silas are beaten up. They're in a terrible condition. They are then thrown into prison. Did the Roman soldier looking after the jail provide adequate medical care? Now, the simple answer is no. He's completely indifferent. He puts Paul and Silas in stocks, forces their legs apart, locks them into a position. It's a form of torture. Welcome to a Roman prison. How does Paul respond? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, if you've got one of those little highlighters when you read the Bible, maybe that's a verse to highlight. Why are they singing hymns? Because they're voicing their trust in and devotion to Christ. The Christ who rules over all. Paul and Silas, by singing hymns, are presenting the gospel to everybody within earshot. And their joy, let me suggest, surprises everybody. Prisoners and guards. They had probably never heard anybody respond to pain and suffering by singing hymns. Paul and Silas have lost their freedom. They've been beaten to a pulp. And yet here they are, despite losing everything, singing hymns to God. Now look at verse 26. Suddenly, Luke says, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Astonishing. Paul is now free, but he doesn't move. Why? Verse 27. 
The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Paul doesn't move because he knows what will happen to the jailer if anyone escapes. He'll have no honour, he'll be punished. Paul rightly thinks that maybe the jailer will try to kill himself. So here Paul is acting to serve the jailer. The jailer then says something surprising. Sir, what must I do to be saved? Now why does he ask to be saved at this point from God's judgment? Well, probably because he connects the earthquake with the God Paul and Silas had been singing to. The earthquake vindicates their claim that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the true God, the Creator. And maybe they had seen the impact of Christ on Paul's life. He had tortured Paul. But here is Paul repaying the evil that had been done to them with good. Now, why was Paul like that? Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate example, isn't he, of repaying evil with good. Jesus on a cross, absorbing evil, yet saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What did Paul say to the jailer? Verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, hopefully there will be a diagram appearing on the screen. Oh, isn't that? The wonders of modern technology. Thank you. Three boxes. These three boxes are three distinct ways of thinking about life. The first box is a religious box. It's a religious way of thinking about life. The line across the middle of the box is a line between good and evil, right and wrong. Above the line you can write the word God. Only God is good. Only God is light. There is no evil or decay in the happy land of the Trinity. Below the line, you can write the word humanity. There is darkness in all of us. Jesus in Mark 7 says, For it is from within, out of the human heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. The religious message is that we all start below the line, under God's judgment. But we can lift ourselves up by being good. Going to church, saying some prayers, giving money to the poor. One day you do the right thing, you're up. The next day you do something wrong. You're back down beneath the line again under God's judgment. 
Every week you're up and down. You spend your whole life going up and down and you hope you die when you're up. Because maybe then God will welcome you and love you. The box on the far side is a secular way of thinking about life. There is a line across the middle of the box. The line is between right and wrong. But because secular people do not believe in God, the line they draw is one that's shaped by their culture. In a secular perspective, the the name you write above the line, broadly speaking, is humanity. Humanity is above all. And the secular story is that people are fundamentally good. You may be up and down, which is why that funny line is there. But you're mostly good. The only people who are really below the line are Hitler and Putin. But the rest of us are good. The box in the middle is Christianity. Again, the line across the middle of the box is a line between right and wrong, good or evil. The Christian story is that only God is light. Totally good. No darkness within God at all. The only person who can live above the line. Where are we? We're all below. There is darkness in all of us. How do we, as it were, go from the bottom up well, you're looking at a picture of a cross. Christianity is about Jesus on a cross. The Christian message is that God comes in Christ to save us from his judgment and the many ways that sex, money and power ruin our lives. Jesus lives the life we do not live. He keeps, fulfills the Ten Commandments. He dies to death that we deserve. He takes upon himself God's judgment on a cross. He dies for our sins in our place. He is then raised by the Father from death to life. He now lives and forgives and shares his life with anyone who surrenders to his love. What did Paul do in the, in the prison in Philippi? He drew my I mean he drew the boxes. Three boxes. Helping people to be clear about what it means to be in a relationship with the eternal God. It's not about trying to be good. It's just about being real and honest. It's about saying I suck. The way to become a Christian is to admit that you're weak not to claim strength that doesn't belong to you. You put your trust in Jesus, you have faith in Jesus, not faith in yourself and your goodness. Why are so many people offended by Christianity? Because it undermines and attacks your pride and your independence. Of those three boxes, which one do you think you live in today? 
Which box is your box? Are you here at church today because you're really in box A. You're trying to be good. Trying to fix the mess yourself. Are you here today because maybe you're just checking out the whole Christian thing? You're a secular person. Which box is your box? Let me briefly take you back to Philippi before we finish. What happens the following day? The authorities tell the jailer to release Paul and Silas, but Paul isn't willing to brush anything under the carpet. Verse 37. Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them, come to them, let them come themselves and escort us out. What is Paul doing? Here's my language. He's speaking truth to power. He's holding people accountable for their actions. He's saying to the authorities, you can't just push us around. We want justice. And what did Paul leave behind in Philippi? A church a new community that was created by and held together by Jesus. And by creating this new community, God is creating an alternative culture in Philippi. In this new culture, your race, your gender, your status are no longer significant. The only thing that really matters is Jesus. And God, by bringing together a rich woman, a powerless slave, and a Roman jailer, made that absolutely clear for all to see. Before the living God, everyone is absolutely equal. Are you one of the bad guys? As I suggested earlier, if you're a Christian, many people will see you as a bad guy as someone whose values and beliefs are not simply to be ridiculed, but are harmful, a form of hate speech. You may therefore want to adopt the Benedict option, adopt a low profile, withdraw into family, withdraw into church, protect yourself from the coming storm. I'm not sure that that's the option Paul is taking in Acts 16. Now, alternatively, you may want to adopt the Spong option. Allow the culture and its values to consume you. To take, as it were, the Christ out of Christianity. But I don't think that's what Paul is doing in Acts 16. Paul in Acts 16, let me suggest, is challenging you, inviting you to do four things. Pray, walk, talk, church. Paul prays. When the Spirit stops him going to Asia, he prays. He prays with Lydia. He prays in jail. This 
church has just purchased a building in Thornbury. Why don't you pray that God will fill it? Maybe you could pray for five people every day. People from home or work or the community that you want to bring to church with you. Walk. Walk is about character. Paul is a kind person, a patient person, a generous person. You see it in the way he relates to the slave girl and in the way he relates to the Philippian jailer. Maybe you could follow his lead. Maybe you could seek to live in line with the gospel. Become a more generous, kinder, dare I say it, more attractive person. Put your life on display. Let people see the difference Jesus makes. Don't hide. Talk. Talks about speaking the gospel. Paul explains here the gospel in different ways to different people. Maybe you could follow his lead this week. Maybe this week you could draw three boxes and talk about the difference between the religious story, the Christian story and the secular story. Maybe this week you can talk rather than hide. Church. Paul in Philippi creates a new culture, a new group. And that church, that new community, challenges the prevailing culture in Philippi. Maybe that's what we need to do at Darabin. Create a new culture where your gender and your cultural background, your race and your status and your economics don't matter. Maybe if people walk in, they see something different, taste something different, feel maybe at home. Let me finish with Ray Ortland. By the power of God, the gospel creates something new in the world today. It creates not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Gospel-centred churches are living proof that the good news is true. That Jesus is not a theory, but is real as he gives back our humanness. In its doctrine and culture, words and deeds, such a church makes visible the restored humanity that only Christ can give. The only answer to one culture is another culture. Not a concept, but a counterculture. A church should offer the world such a counterculture, a living embodiment of the gospel. We want that to be us, don't we? 
Let me pray. Father God, pour your love into our hearts by your Spirit. We pray that we would know the height, the width, the depth of your love for us in Christ. Help us, Father, to be willing to follow the crucified Christ, the risen Christ. If our body is marked in the way that he is, is still marked. Help us to rejoice. Give us the strength and courage we need to live in a war zone. And in his name we pray. Amen.